Welcome back to Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. We are so delighted that you're joining us today, and we are also very delighted to have a new friend, Danielle Fanfare, on the pod today. Danielle, how are you? I'm doing well. I am. Um, I saw a meme on the social medias that said Houston's weather report looks like a lottery ticket. Um, <laughs> 80, 15, 70, 35, you know? Yes. Wow. And, um, and so I'm in, I'm in the lottery ticket of, of weather down here and it's having all kinds of consequences from my sinuses and from my, from my plans and from my outfits. So I'm, I'm a little frustrated, but I'm good. I think on the fly. Well, I was just saying that I know you um, because you're the the president of my IEA chapter, the Great Lakes Region chapter. And so yes. I was just hoping maybe I could call you Madam President during the interview. <laughs> well, Madam Co-President, because Claire yeah. and I share a presidency role <laughs> and I pretend to know what I'm doing. And then mm. I just go ask her like, hey, what, what should I be doing? So <laughs> you have a certification program. I do. That you've developed and created, and it's phenomenal from what I hear. Could you tell us about that? So my lens, okay, is when I discovered the Enneagram or when the Enneagram found me, I was right smack dab in a crisis. Mm -hmm. I had a crisis of identity, a crisis of faith. I was an exhausted, burnt out Christian pastor, Mm -hmm. and... The rules of Christianity were no longer making sense to me, and I was no longer believing in what I was preaching. And my resistance was showing up in my body mm. as um, back spasms, uh, stomach issues, constantly inflamed sinuses, and just overall exhaustion, just malaise, you know? It was also showing up as anxiety, which I did not know was anxiety. A lot of folks think that anxiety is kind of this one-dimensional thing where you're just like, you know, having panic attacks and sliding down the shower, you know, mm-hmm. panicking. And that that happens. That's a real um, experience that people have. And people who are experiencing different lived experiences, though, who may not have the luxury of having a public panic attack, mm-hmm. right? Anxiety can look like irritation. It can look like frustration. It can look like a sharp, hard tone. It can look like injuring yourself. It can look like losing your way around town, even though you've driven this route a hundred times. It can look like forgetting things that you know you know, and just not doing things with the proficiency that you are used to doing it. And that's because the intellectual fatigue that you, that is causing or triggering your anxiety is crowding out your executive function, right? And this is really true for Black women. I can't speak to every historically excluded community. I know that in my own research and in my own therapy, a lot of what I have learned is having an attitude or being angry or um, being withdrawn or not engaging socially a lot of what people perceive as being this kind of standoffish, kind of angry person beneath the topsoil of that behavior is anxiety. And so I was experiencing crisis of faith. You know, I was like, God is not real. This shit don't work. Y'all are just trying to control and oppress me. 
using sin language and guilt as a motivator. Mm. And I'm not teaching anybody else Mm -hmm. to do this. And I also felt very limited in how I could take care of myself because there are some pastors who get rich. I was not one of those pastors. And so I felt like like a deal was broken. You know, I made this deal, you know, with God to live this very, you know, moral, clean, above board life. And I was supposed to receive blessings by following the rules. And I followed the rules and I was like, where are my blessings? They're not here, right? (laughs) I also had postpartum depression. I had just had a baby and was looking around like, this is not what I wanted to bring her into. The various challenges that I was having in my life, I was like, I did not want to bring a child and, and, and have her inherit these challenges. And so many of those things were swirling at the same time. And I remember writing in my journal, I don't know what to do with my anger and my resentment. I am so angry and I'm so resentful. And I pray and I fast and I read my little scriptures And I go to my yoga class and right as I'm doing those things, I start feeling better. And then as soon as I finish, I hate everything again. I don't know how to sustain this. One of the organization that I co-founded that was part worship gathering, part um, vocational incubator, one of our mentors and um, donors uh, said, hey, I got this retreat that I have paid for y'all to go to. And it was the now dissolved Gravity Center for Activism and Contemplation, I think is the full name of it. Chris and Felina Hewitts were the hosts of the retreat. And I I had an attitude the whole time. I was like, what is this? Why are we at a monastery? Like this is, you know, I went to the the Enneagram workshop that, that was during that grounding retreat. And when he got to the type one, I was like, oh, move on. Like, go to the next one. Like, I felt so exposed. But what caught me was that the the um, the passion and fixation of the resentment and anger and the hamster wheel that the type one gets on through the lens of resentment, turning that thing over and over again. Who's right? Who's wrong? Not me. Uh-uh, you know? And then the, the anger that fuels that that fixation and then the, the steps to recover and relieve that that anger to to essentially get to this serene energy of understanding how everything is perfectly working together, I was like, oh my gosh, like I have I have traced that pattern. Came home, I still have my notes from that session, came home, read the big blue, you know, the big blue Enneagram Bible, you know, Russ Husson mm-hmm. and Don Rizzo, and then just dug into it, got Um, some more trainings, got some more certifications, was the only young African-American woman in most of my certification trainings. And when I say young, I mean youngest. I just turned 40 in 2022. So gosh, this was 20, between 2013 and 2018. So I was still in my thirties, you know? And so I created the curriculum and essentially the, the training that filled in some of the gaps that I experienced when I was in training. I was just going to ask if you would mind giving us an example of some of those gaps that your certification is filling in. Also, mm-hmm. what is it called? So my training is called Confusion to Clarity, Leveraging the Enneagram. And I, my promise is that I can teach anyone to teach the Enneagram anywhere, you know, even without saying the Enneagram, because, you know, some folks are not oh, ready. I love that. They're not ready for these. Yeah. They're not ready for these... Uh, 
these arrows <laughs> and these and these symbols, right? These um, invitations. Scary words. <laughs> these invitations. <laughs> scary words. And, you know, one of the things that I learned and and began to enjoy is that just the intelligence centers, mm-hmm. I mean, head, heart, and gut intelligence, I can spend a weekend on that, right? Just in terms of the awareness that we have this innate GPS that we can really activate and and listen to that will really be helpful to us as we make choices and and navigate our lives. So one of the one of the holes that was missing is you know who gets to be their who gets to be their type fully expressed. Mm-hmm. We're learning about type 3s and type 8s, type 7s, you know. And in my practice, I was encountering folks who were like, yeah, I know my type. However, the cultural background that I'm from, my type is always uh, in opposition to my cultural experience. Okay. So for instance, one of my clients uh, lives out in LA. She is Korean Presbyterian type seven. So in a Presbyterian church, y'all, it's so quiet. You know, you can go. You 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 can go to the Presbyterian church, Very and never yeah. and never say a mumbling word. I mean, it's like so quiet. Okay, so from a from a religious context, her exuberance is discouraged. Mm-hmm. And then she let me know that her Korean family. This may not be true of all Korean families. Her Korean family is also a very quiet family, and so she comes in with her sevenness. Hey, oh, you know, she, you know, she can't run up and hug her grandfather and give him a big juicy kiss on the cheek, right? Like the the ways that she was um, grappling with the strategy that she was employing through her personality and the rejection that she was experiencing in some of the most formative spaces in her life, there was no training for that. Yeah. Because most Enneagram trainings are led by white men and white men and white women who they just don't have the lived experience to be able to incorporate that. Mm -hmm. Have another client who is a type eight woman. Uh, She's from a Caribbean country. She is an executive director of an organization. Well, she has a thick accent. She's, um, she's very dark skinned, which her skin is beautiful. However, we know that we exist in a country that, favors lighter skinned people over darker skinned people. And her type eightness is very effective in terms of driving the organization forward. However, there are some folks who don't have a context for a bold, blunt, heavily accented African-American woman giving them instruction, right? And so she has to do a lot of translating of her tone, her intentions, Right. She has to really just really breadcrumb breadcrumb her intentions. Well, there's no training Mm. that that equips a coach who is in conversation with someone. There's not a lot of training around practices and ways to support someone who is not allowed to be fully expressed in their type because of being from a historically excluded community. Right. Right. There's also no training, or not that I experience, when someone has consistently mistyped themselves because 
there's certain types that the strategies of their behavior are rewarded by our current culture. Like for instance, a lot of African-American women start off thinking they are a type two because generosity and helpfulness is a survival strategy. However, I have one client that's really a type five. How many, how many senior citizen African-American type fives have you seen in a movie, mm. right? And so there was no training for folks whose personality type and the way that they lead with their personality style was in direct opposition with their cultural conditioning and lived experience. Sure. That, that seems to, in some ways, lead into another thing we wanted to hear from you about is, so you, you work with a lot of different groups, a lot of different people with different backgrounds and perspectives, biases. How, how do you go about fostering these spaces that are both brave and safe? Mm. And how would you define those two terms? Yeah. So on my, my website and in all of my little proposals and statements of work, I talk about creating an environment that is psychologically safe, characterized by belonging and effective trust, right? So there's that head, heart, and gut again, y'all, right? Psychological safety is the belief yeah. that I can take personal risks and share my ideas and my intellectual property with you, and I'm safe to do that. Belonging, I want you and you want me. We are both on the same page. We both want each other here. Effective trust is the gut sense that I will not be harmed by the people that I am with. I have a gut sense that I am okay here. Hmm. I also share their intention and I won't harm them either, right? And so the first thing I like to do is work with each client and get honest about the barriers to psychological safety, to a sense of belonging, and to effective trust. Like, what are the barriers and, and how can we trust people's experiences to really dig into the barriers that exist? And then we're going to create a training around the solutions to those barriers. The next step is, what are the abundant benefits to being a part of an organization or mm. a community that is characterized by psychological safety, belonging, and effective trust. And that conversation, it goes all the way to the bottom line. It goes to productivity. It goes to innovation. It goes to morale. You know, it, the conversation just is so expansive around what happens when we create these environments, when we overcome these barriers and we actually provide the solutions. And then that gets people really motivated to immediately begin to cultivate that even in the workshop, even in the training, even in the, the retreat or whatever we're doing. And then once folks understand that that's the goal, you see sometimes a little bit of the, the easing off of, or the loosening of the armor that is the personality. And folks are feeling more um, confident about sharing what's true for them, what's coming up for them. And then, and then we get to just watch our awareness do its own work. Can you give can you give an example of like the you you mentioned barriers and was it abundance? Yeah. No. Yeah, barriers and abundance. What what were what are some of those things that you bring up with people that help them see those more clearly? Yeah. So I I I actually ask so every organization I work with I have pre-project, you know, investigation conversation and um 
usually the person who's most excited about the work is the person who's like in the most pain, (laughs) right? (laughs) They're like, we need this now, you know? And so I just asked them kind of privately, like discreetly, what, what are some examples of barriers to these, you know, objectives? And they tell me their stories, you know, they say, Hey, you know, I'm a, you know, senior level, you know, executive. And when I am in a meeting, I'm constantly asked to do administrative tasks because I'm a woman, right? Or one of my clients who is a shareholder at a law firm, I trained a bunch of shareholders on what equity really is. There was some dissonance in terms of what some folks thought equity was and what other folks thought it was. And then there was panic because of the dissonance. And so this person, this shareholder, um, identifies as Mexican-American, However, his family is indigenous to Texas, like before Hmm. Texas was Texas. And so lots of there's lots of conversations around citizenship and, you know, what that means for everyone. And he get he would get a lot of conversations around, like, is your family from here? Are they documented? You know, like like trying to suss out his legitimacy. And he's like, listen, I'm more American than you, right? Like I've been here longer than, Mm. my family has been here longer than you, but I have more trouble with my passport, right? And so microaggressions, which are these insults and slights that are usually happening on a daily basis where folks are feeling othered and excluded and honestly injured, Um, they're feeling harmed by questions that seem innocent, that seem, you know, like they're not intentionally um, designed to do folks harm. So we actually, there's a, um, we have a module around understanding what microaggressions are, understanding how they're barriers to psychological safety, belonging and effective trust, and then how to upgrade our language so that the impact of our words is in alignment with the intentions that we have, right? And a lot of folks are like, first of all, we didn't even know what was coming across, what I mean is this, and I go, ah, there's the upgrade, right? And so we get to investigate how our personalities have have the power to give us some kind of guideposts in terms of like using our superpowers to upgrade our language. And that's something that I discerned in the trainings that I was taking, like, oh my gosh, all this is possible. However, very few of the trainings offered kind of a, an inclusion lens, you know, there was maybe one or two comments about this. However, in uh, in the Wisdom of the Enneagram, R- Russ Hudson writes, or maybe it was Don Rizzo. I, I can't remember who is who is speaking in first person because the book goes back and forth. But he writes that a, a black Enneagram type six and a white Enneagram type six may have more in common than they do with their respective communities because of how accurate the, the Enneagram is around in terms of helping us unearth what fuels our behavior and thought processes. And I just thought about that, like, man, there's so many opportunities to utilize the Enneagram to really help people unite, understand, and even recognize how they're, they're sharing ethos. Right. And so, yeah, so that's, that's a long way of answering that question. I'm that's fascinating. Danielle, (laughs) it strikes me that your trainings, you know, when you're with groups or teams, and in working with them for some that might be a safe space and for others that might need to be a brave space. Right. 
wanted to ask you a, a question, you know, to kind of lean into this idea of safe and brave spaces a little bit more, if that's all right. It strikes me that in in some circumstances, due to you know our, our socialization, culturally, societally, right, what one group uh, would feel would uh, would be a safe space for them could actually be a way of kind of a, um, not encountering or dealing with mm. like the root problem, right? Mm-hmm. And then, or like a healthy, like brave space for a group, say your workshop, for instance, you know, could be a brave, could be a really healthy, brave space for certain members of a group, uh, you know, could actually, you know, be maybe deemed unsafe or triggering for another. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and, and this notion of how we perceive and experience these safe and brave spaces feels really complex. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, how do you uh, navigate that? And what are some of the insights that you could share with us mm-hmm. in our audience as to how to be sensitive to that in a way that yeah. helps continue to encourage growth and development? Yeah. You know, for me, science has been a really um, uniting space. When I talk about the brain as a pattern finding machine, right? And I say, you know, your brain is a pattern finding machine. An unconscious bias is actually an evolutionary holdover from the ways that our predecessors had to memorize and quickly synthesize information to stay alive, right? So if we are in the kind of beginning of the, what is it called? The Eocene era? Well, Eocene era slash mammalian era. So this is when human life and like those gigantic big animals are like overlapping, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you got like the woolly mammoth, and you got like an eight foot sloth. You know what I'm saying? Which yeah. that wouldn't that wouldn't be scary to me. I would love it to see an eight foot sloth. But as long you got as they're all chasing these... you, but okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, but how fast can they go? Right, I they're think you could outrun it, right? <laughs> it's like I'm gonna get you. It's like no, you're not. I've seen Zootopia. Those things are real slow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would probably have one like as a pet, but um, you know, so so our our evolutionary predecessors had to say, okay, paw prints, cave, bear, get out of here, right? They had to say, you know, I can give you a hundred more examples, right? However, the the tendency to use your brain's pattern finding ability to control and predict the outcome of your day, while it's hardwired in the brain, in our modern society where you can be in China in the morning and you can be in New York that night, it's not as helpful, right? So when we start thinking about it that way, and then I invite everyone to put their left hand over their heart, place their right hand over their left hand, take a deep breath and say, we all have biases. We all have biases. So you do this with groups? You do this? Yes. Yes. With my 80-year-old MAGA hat wearing, you know, a v- veteran students who sit in the front row ready to fight me. You know what I'm saying? Um, I taught at NASA, and I had an aeronautical engineer, an astronaut, come up to me and say, I was, I came in here ready to fight you. I can't believe I had a good time in here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's an amazing compliment. And, I mean, I was, and everybody else was like, I can't believe he had a good time. He is usually very, very (laughs) resistant to this kind of conversation. And so creating space where folks can say, hey, I did not design the system that I'm living in. 
and I have a, a, a pause where I can investigate how I can participate in co-creating the world that I want to see is, you know, reassuring the, the, the agreements that we have in our workshops and sessions also speak to our, uh, how we sometimes confuse discomfort with danger. Okay. And so we do um, somatic exercises to regulate our nervous systems hmm. when we start to feel that fight, flight, flee, or fawn response yeah. based on what we're learning. After every little mini module, we stop and we do some kind of experience where we're inhaling the the, the new and the present and we're ex- exhaling that which has expired and needs to go. And so there are there's a multi-sensory design to the confusion and clarity experiences that it that allows you to check in with the logic of your brain, the emotional connection of your heart, and that otherworldly felt sense of your gut, and bring all of those folks to the conversation yeah. so that people are like, no, nah, this is this is uncomfortable and necessary, and I feel safe yeah. navigating sure. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danielle, um, I love that. It sounds it sounds very much like you are meeting people with so much sens- sensitivity, especially, you know, meeting, uh, naming just the autonomic way we are in the world. Hmm. That sounds especially like a, a supportive way to to be with people. I'm curious, um, on the other side of that, how is it that you also include the ways that you challenge people? Mm-hmm. After they feel yeah. like they're seen and they can, you know, I don't know, more likely hear what you're having to say as you're kind of calming their bodies. Is that an order that you do for one, but also then what do you do to, to challenge people in their, mm-hmm. in their views? And yeah, if you can give some really practical examples for people in your, in your work. Yeah. So going back to the science, when mm-hmm. you do those breathing exercises, you engage what's called your vagus nerve. Y'all know what the vagus nerve is, Love right? the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. Love the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is, you know, the rest and digest, tend and befriend, you know, it's it, it, when you stimulate the vagus nerve, you you, sim, you you stimulate parasympathetic innervation. Constantly stimulating that vagus nerve, right, and giving people the opportunity to notice how much power they have over their own experience, mm-hmm. right, and like naming it. Okay, y'all, let's take a break. Let's activate that vagus nerve. Deep breath in through the nose. Slightly constrict the throat, deep breath out through the nose, right? Like let's, and and then let's notice the different parts of our bodies releasing, relaxing. You know, let's name the sensations of the neurological cascade of serotonin and dopamines and oxytocin as we, you know, as we reflect on, you know, why we're grateful or whatever that, whatever the exercise is. And then moving into the different components of each module, and asking questions through the lens of what are we now becoming aware of, right? Because awareness changes your relationship to whatever you become aware of, right? Then how can we empathize with the experience that we just became aware of? Empathy is a learned skill and we can decide to imagine and feel with other people. We can decide that. We can pull from our own memory Or we can simply believe what they are saying they're feeling and experience that with them. That's empathy. Mm -hmm. Then there's compassion, which is compassion is from the Latin compassio, which means cosuffering or to suffer with. 
compassion is actually more logical than it is emotional because once you are um, aware of how someone's suffering, your instinct is to relieve that suffering with some action, right? Mm -hmm. If you see somebody is cold, you throw them a blanket, you throw them a jacket, right? And so we engage compassion. And then lastly, we engage appreciation, which is how can I assign new meaning and new value to this person or this people group or this this in this conversation based on what I've learned from my awareness, my empathy, and my compassion. Like how are they contributing in a unique way? And how is that benefiting the ecosystem even while they go through whatever they're going through, right? And so when we take folks through that journey using the childhood story, you know, your felt sense of wounding, using the passions and the fixations, understanding people's, you know, needs and fears, understanding what people look like in their essence, understanding the the real daily experiences that we have where we cycle from our essence, our highest mind, our virtue, through our passions and fixations and our, you know, whatever, whatever model, whatever triad you're exploring, you know, of the Enneagram, like the real the real, like the actionable cycle that we cycle through, once people start to sense into that, I just notice that their defenses start to go down, right? And they are aware of what John Koenig calls sonder, which is um, his word that means the sudden realization that everybody's inner life is just as complex and vivid as your own. Once we get that sonder going, I mean, there are folks who are still, I'm not saying it's like kumbaya after that, y'all. However, I am saying that people decide in those moments that I'm going to own my privilege and I'm going to leverage it to create the world that I want to see differently than I have been doing before. And I feel safe and brave in naming the ways that I'm going to do that specifically. Woo! Preach. <laughs> preach. I, I, so you see, I retired from the pulpit, but I you can't mean, help you still it. still preach. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> You can take the girl out of the pulpit, but you can't take the pulpit out of the you girl. Can't do I don't it. know. There's got to be there's got to be a, a saying there for you. So uh. listen, I'm an artist. Like I am I am I am creating an exhibition and I and and I'm a part of a round where at, at, here in Houston we have an organization called Project Row Houses and essentially the house becomes the canvas and you just create in and around the house using all kinds of mixed media. And so my house is going to be called Words as Social Sculpture. And mm. I am exploring how African-American vernacular English has really supported global communication. I mean, you see, you know, slang and, you know, terms that come from the African-American community, like on like cell phone commercials, you know what I'm saying? And so like African-American vernacular English cannot be unprofessional if it's also lucrative from a marketing standpoint, right? And so um, I was talking about that with a fellow artist and I was sharing with him what the house was supposed to be like. And then he just goes, dun, 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 dun. like he just starts like, like dancing, like he's in church. And I'm like, I can't even, I can't even talk about art without people feeling like I'm preaching a sermon. So mm. I, I embrace it. Yeah, I accept you're powerful. it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you mentioned privilege, and I want to ask you a question about that. I'm wondering how you, in your trainings or workshops that you do, how are you engaging people who might find themselves to, to be privileged or centered? How are you engaging them along with people who might find themselves to be marginalized in different ways? Yeah. 
So one of the modules that we explore, and I in my in my certification, I teach people how to teach this module. And in my corporate trainings, I teach the module. There's this wheel of intersectionality that was created by a social worker with like a master's in social work. And it's an incomplete wheel. And the wheel uh, has, a, has a nucleus. And in the center of the wheel are the words power, privilege, access, and resources. Then there is a, a, a circle around that nucleus. And that circle has the people groups that are the closest to that nucleus, right? And then as you get farther out, you see the other groups and their proximity to that circle, right? And then the the circle, is it looks like an eye. It's really eerie. The circle itself is divided into gender identity, you know, socioeconomic status, uh, race, uh, religious affiliation, native language, sexual orientation, a couple more different categories. The first thing I say is let's look at this diagram together and let's look at your personal communities and where they fall on that diagram, right? A lot of folks in the room have more privilege than they think because there's all kinds of privilege, right? So that's one thing is to make sure that folks are owning the inherent privilege that they have. And it's Mm -hmm. a Western lens. So I make that clear. This is a Western North American lens on privilege because in North America, being thinner is privilege. And there are other cultures in other countries where being thin is associated with hunger and poverty, right? And so we're focusing on the North American lens. And so we think about that and we have folks work with it and talk with a partner about like, what is my proximity to privilege, power, access, and resources? Where do I fall in this wheel? Then I ask, what slices of the pie are missing that are at play in your context, okay? And so the next worksheet or the next slide is a completely empty wheel. The only thing that is filled in is power, privilege, access, and resources. And we have everybody draw their own intersectionality. Intersectionality mm-hmm. is a term that's that was created by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw that refers to the compounding oppression that people from multiple excluded communities experience. So for instance, being someone who is maybe Native American, who identifies as trans, who speaks the native language of their tribe and maybe speaks heavily accented English, that person will experience oppression, exclusion, and discrimination in various different aspects of their life. And so getting an understanding of how intersectionality helps us get clear on the suffering that someone is experiencing is really important. So when folks create their own intersectionality wheel, they 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 get to have that that interior dialogue with themselves about, you know, wow, this this is the system. Like this is the interstructurally oppressive system that we're living in. They are able to be more brave in naming where they land in this in this diagram. And then the conversation stems from this idea that I, I take that diagram and I say, hey, y'all, the goal is not to replace the people who are closest with to resources, power, access, and privilege with the people who are ex- on the outer part of the ring. The goal is for us to take this inner circle of power, access, privilege, and resources and expand it to the outer edges of the circle so that everyone has equitable access. 
And then everybody goes, okay, <laughs> I thought you were trying to replace me. Yeah, Ooh. it feels less threatening, I would imagine. That's really great. Those who have the privilege, right? Yeah. So I'm not trying to replace you. Sure. I'm letting you know that the pie has an infinite amount of slices. There you go. And we don't know how infinite the pie is until we start sharing. Mm. There, there's there, there's That's something tweetable. M- mic drop, yeah. Come on. <laughs> That'll be the pull quote, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good. Danielle, I, I want to shift this conversation to the Enneagram community. Okay. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about your work you know, with corporate clients and and yeah, and training groups and that sort of thing. I'm curious, you know, as you engage and observe what's going on in the Enneagram community, I think what are some of the, well, first, you know, what do you hope to see in terms of change and development of the Enneagram community over the next few years? And maybe that might inevitably lead to describing maybe some of the current maybe challenges or frustrations that, <laughs> that may be there. Yeah, I have felt at the same time, very embraced in the Enneagram community and at the same time, very invisible. Unless we're talking about teaching the Enneagram to like black people, right? And so what I would love to see is true inclusion of different folks' perspectives and teaching styles and insights around the Enneagram being esteemed as applicable to everybody. I'm not the Enneagram teacher for black women. I'm your Enneagram teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and the things that I have to teach through my unique lens are just as valuable as, you know, all of the, all the, all the Enneagram goats, all the Ennea goats, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, that's an Instagram account waiting to happen, right? Ennea, Ennea goats. Ennea goats. <laughs> Any of goes, yeah, you got your Helen Palmers, you got your Sandra Matries, you got your Ichazos, you know what I'm saying? You got your Naranjo quotes. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, just character character neurosis all day long. Um, I also take a, like, a, I love science, so I take a psychological approach yeah, it's, to that's clear. Yeah. personality type. And so, and I don't have a, a PhD in psychology. I just like it, right? Mm. And I have uh, a lot of excitement around integration, Right. And so I'd love to see less intellectualizing of type and more integration of what are the conditions that put each person and their unique personhood into this flow state, into the zone where their essence emerges. And they are experiencing all of the benefits of being in their essence. And they're not having to divide their time between surviving and recovering and floating in their essence. Sure. You know, I'd love to talk more about what an integrated recovery healing process looks like, you know, in the in the deep sense of fatigue and wounding that's unique to how different folks express their their personality type. I'd love to explore how the Enneagram really is so functional towards our healing. Thank you for naming mm-hmm. that, because I think that I have felt some pressure in Enneagram spaces to be like, well, now I have the Enneagram and it's just an mm. uphill trajectory from here, you know, but it's really exhausting <laughs> work. It is really exhausting work that honestly, sometimes I just have to step back from and go, I can't, I can't right now. I cannot even mm-hmm. with myself right now. So well, you know what I'm saying? Thank you for just I love naming that. You, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, 
I really live on that Jay Krishnamurti quote that says, if you understand what you are without trying to change it, then what you are begins to transform, mm-hmm. you know? And so the, the trainings and the workshops and the learning environments and the retreats that I get to curate for people, that word curate is Latin curare, which means to care for. I just create an environment where we get to care for ourselves and each other. And the awareness of what it really requires to fully care for ourselves, it does the work of helping us heal. Danielle, thank you for just, man, the, the well of, of uh, wisdom. And I just, I hear so much that gets pointed towards how you bring people together. That's what I, I hear you doing incredibly well. Um, from, you know, from all of the different areas and, and ver- variety of thinking. So I would, it would just be so uh, unique to be a part of one of these. I'd love to, to get on one at some point here. I'd love to have you. Yeah. yeah we, yeah. um, we're, we're uh, starting a new, it's kind of more of a cohort model. I used to do like the kind of the weekend, mm-hmm. like immersions, but those are painful for me with a <laughs> small child and like a dog in a, in a body. Oh. <laughs> it's hard when you have a body. It is. Um, <laughs> so, um, we're, we, we've switched them to like a twice weekly mm. over several weeks experience. And so I'll yeah. send y'all some some info about that. I'd love to have you. You know, coming to a close here, I do want to ask, is there anything um, pressing or, yeah, just as you sit for a second and anything comes up for you or anything missing in this conversation that you would want to share with our listeners? Just want to give you space for that. Yeah. I think the, the reason why I was most excited to join you all in conversation today is that I just really believe in the healing power of seeing and being seen, feeling and being felt, Mm. and each of us validating each other's experiences, you know? And that happens when we give each other attention and energy, you know, like those are powerful resources, you know? And so I just appreciate very much that the Enneagram and, you know, the way you all are approaching, exploring what it means to be a human living on the planet gives attention and energy to what folks are experiencing, the pains that they're experiencing, the joys that they're experiencing. And I just would love to, for y'all to just continue to do that with people who are kind of unexpected geniuses in their, in their spaces Hmm. so that we can begin to recognize and even expect genius to come from anybody. Mm, Yes. That's great. Love that. That's a good word. Please all unexpected geniuses. um, (laughs) Because you're often Let us- rather hard to find. <laughs> like, that's kind of the name of the game. But um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, rede- redefining genius, redefining mm-hmm. what what yeah. somebody said it w- was supposed to be, and that we mm-hmm. all just went along with. Yes, I hear you yeah. doing that so well. So thank you, thank you for your, for your voice. How can our our listeners find you and contact you? Easily go to www.confusiontoclarity.life. That's L I F E, as in the life we live. Um, and everything is there. Every experience. I have a little, a little workbook that is the book that I Mm. wish I had when I was studying. Mm. Um, it's called go from Mm. confusion to clarity. Mm. And so it integrates a lot of what we've talked about here, um, that I am re-releasing in March. And so I'd love for folks to check that out. Love feedback. Awesome. It's difficult for me to be brave, to receive feedback as a, as a type one. Mm. However, (laughs) When I do it, I, it's always rewarding. So, mm. yeah. Thank you wow. so much, Danielle. This was great. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So thank, much. you. thank you, Madam President. <laughs> thank y'all for having me. <laughs> this was fun. I appreciate y'all. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time.